for the powerless in the world. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to completely understand in 21st century America, but around the world and in countries where there are no such things as equality and rights for all and right. where things like educational access and benefactors and social mobility are impossible, uh, and when the powerful are cruel, what what do the powerless have at their disposal to protect themselves? What do women like Tamar have at their disposal? Oftentimes nothing but the power of their own voice and their choice of agency. Hi friends, how are you holding up? That's a genuine question as this year is for the most part almost over. It'll be August in a couple days and whew, it has been both painfully slow and ridiculously fast. I'm both happy that we've made it to August, and I'll admit, I'm nervous about what's to come. Nervous about November and all that that will bring. This journey is long and hard, and I hope that you all are finding rest in the midst of this struggle, however and whatever that looks like for you. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Michelle Reyes, who is an Indian American. She's the Vice President of Asian American Christian Collaborative as well as a church planner, pastor's wife, author, speaker, mom, and activist in Austin, Texas. In 2014, Michelle and her husband co-planted Hope Community Church, a minority-led multicultural church that serves low-income and disadvantaged communities in East Austin. Michelle also has a forthcoming book with Zondervan on cross-cultural relationships, which we'll talk about in this episode including the fact that it is indeed a long journey. The struggle for justice requires perseverance. I so enjoyed this conversation with Michelle because we chat about some things that have been on my mind and heart lately as I work on my book, and that's the notion of trickery in the Bible. Michelle gives us some really good insight on folklore, which she describes as the site of resistance for marginalized people and communities. And this category of stories that we see within biblical narrative gives us examples and stirs our imagination for how we might live faithfully, even when faced with broken systems and institutions. We also talk about trick stars or women tricksters like Tamar. And lastly, Michelle reflects on Paul's instruction that as Christians, we should become all things to all people. What does that mean for bicultural or bicultured people? Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation as you listen in on Michelle's story of living in an in-between liminal space. Welcome to The Protagonistas. So I'm super, super excited to have Michelle, you chatting with us today. I, like I said, I've been kind of, you know, we've connected through social media and I've loved following your work and just reading about your super unique and super, um, yeah, just profound perspective. So if you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your spiritual and cultural background. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This is just so exciting for us to be able to connect and chat more. So I'm a bicultural second generation Indian American woman who grew up in Minnesota, but now lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, and you know, I talk a lot about cultural identity in my writing and in my upcoming book as well, which at its core, cultural identity is simply the narratives and stories that we hold dear and that it explain and define who we are ethnically, uh, but also so much more. And 
for me, my cultural identity is such a mix. Like I have pieces of both the Midwest and the South in me now. And I hold within me both the story of my mother's upbringing as a 100% ethnic Indian in Africa, in Uganda, Africa, where she was born and raised, but also my father's British and German heritage that can be traced back through the daughters of the American Revolution. So um, my narrative has both pride and pain in it, right? It's, right. it's, it's a narrative of immigration and crossing borders, um, the journey of my, my mother's forefathers as forced laborers from India to build the British Railroad in Uganda and their escape from genocide under the rule of President Idi Amin um, in, the, in the 70s, but then also my father's ancestral journey as pilgrims on the Mayflower. Wow. And my father's family, they're all still farmers in the Delaware, Pennsylvania area, still deeply connected to the land, are, and in, in the best sense of the word, stubborn, resilient, tough people. <laughs> and these <laughs> qualities were instilled in me at a very young age just as much as the Indian values of respect for authority and open, and like an open door approach to hospitality. Um, so that along with spiritually, I grew up in a Christian home, but of course this has a backstory too. My mom was born and raised Hindu, mm. but converted to Christianity after marrying my dad. And sadly she was disowned by her family because of this. Wow. So I haven't met most of my mom's family actually, but you know, my mom, never regretted her decision and she instilled in me at a very young age the importance of choosing Jesus no matter what. So that's a little bit of my story. Yeah wow that's fascinating. So did you have um, your mom you know being raised herself Hindu and then converting to Christianity did any of that um, or did any of your Indian sort of background your mother's Indian background um, like how what what part of that sort of seeped into your upbringing or how were you formed in that way? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we're probably going to talk about folklore a little bit later on, but, you know, some of my earliest memories is my mom um, telling me stories of, of, you know, Indian folk tales um, as a really young child. And we have this whole stack of very colorful children's books um, about Indian folklore. And so I, I grew up being taught to read the Bible every day and to, you know, to love God and, and to follow Christ. But like alongside reading the Bible every day, I was also reading Indian folklore. Like this was something that was so um, intimately tied to my bond with my mom. Uh, and, and it was just like these oral stories that were, were passed down um, to, to me. And so um, that that's like one of my very first memories of like Indian culture being parted on to me. But there's, I mean, there's so many more things, right? I mean, like, I was that typical Indian kid that, you know, came home and helped cook dinner with my mom and then went and did my homework. And I wasn't allowed to talk to boys <laughs> in school. And, you know, it was really hard to try to explain why I couldn't go to parties if there was a boy there and, um, you know, all those, all those sorts of things and, and high respect for authority, uh, which, you know, is also a Christian right. command do right to honor your father and mother but of course in Indian culture that's like taken to an another level of like you're never allowed to disagree ever <laughs> with your parents and so um you know like my my parents like it's my mom who's Indian and my dad who's not but like in many ways I feel like I was raised in a, in a semi-traditional Indian home mm. because we ate Indian food like the first time I ha I tried a hamburger 
it was like in college. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, we, we just like didn't eat. I mean, maybe like when my mom was tired, like maybe we'd have macaroni. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, ham- hamburgers was like a novelty in college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's hilarious. And so you would say that although your dad, um, Anglo, right? Your dad was mm-hmm. white, um, but he very much your mom's culture was very much dominant in your house. In your Absolutely. House. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and as far as spiritually, so what was like your church experience like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all sorts of complicated. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in Minnesota in a very like typical Scandinavian community, mm. uh, we were like, not just uh, the lone Indians in our community, but really one of the only people of color yeah. Um, and so I, I, we attended an all white Baptist church and, and this is Northern Baptist churches. So it, it's, it's not connected to the Southern Baptist convention in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like literally all of my classmates and all of the people in my youth group and everyone else were like fair skinned, blonde haired, blue eyed kids. <laughs> like <laughs> you could not miss the fact that I look different from them. Um, I mean, this is going to be revealing of my age. Like it was, this was was like the climax of the purity culture movement um, and and like apologetics. And like, that was what was, you know, taught both in school. I went to a Christian school, but then also at church. Um, So yeah, very conservative and systematic theology, which of course never erased or any of these sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, you know, it, it was, it was in those places that I never, I never heard anybody talk about the beauty of culture. Mm. Um, I never heard anybody ever address issues of, of, of race or racism, not right. you know? And so for the longest time, I just um, kind of accepted this idea that, that um, those were political issues that, that right. we didn't as, as good Christian, as good Republican Christians, like we, you know, we don't talk about that stuff and, you know, a lot changed once I left Minnesota after college, but yeah. So I guess in that sense, it was a more conservative Baptist, um, white evangelical upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that you, I guess, never really um, thought too much about your, or I'm sure, I mean, it's weird to say you never thought about your cultural identity. Of course you did, but you you know, it wasn't something where you, I guess, wrestled with theologically or, or in that sense. Um, but in a recent post that you you posted, which I read, and I think it was with the AACP, mm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's the Asian American. If you want to see the entire title of that, <laughs> the Asian American Christian Collaborative, where I serve as vice president. Perfect. Okay. So yes. Yeah, so you um, wrote this beautiful reflection on Psalm one nineteen that I'd love to to ask you more about and. Uh, I'll just read a quote here. You said, um, as a second generation Indian American woman, I've spent much of my life not fitting into any category. I'm not quite Asian, but not really white either. My own mother, who is 100% ethnically Indian, was born and raised in an Indian village in Uganda, Africa. So Indian isn't even her home country, or excuse me, India isn't even her home country. Both of us in our own ways are like no one else, a reality that caused me to struggle with a sense of belonging growing up. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Um, I, I'm so fascinated by this idea of, because it's not even like 
you know, uh, it's not even where you're kind of struggling with two places and two cultures and an in-betweenness, but it's also your mom and sort of her story mm -hmm. that you kind of inherited. And so, um, yeah, so if you want to elaborate a little bit on what that was like or what that is like. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like, as I was mentioning before, like, more often than not, particularly growing up, I was the sole Indian in non-Indian spaces. And beyond that, I've I've never been a part of an Indian community. I'm jealous of my Indian American friends who grew up connected to an Indian church. And I've never been a part of the majority either. You know, this is also um, an interesting conversation that I've had with some dear African American sisters because they talk about how, you know, when they when they go into to public spaces, they are the minority, but they have this rich and beautiful black community where they can they can um, thrive in and where they can be the majority. And I've I've never even had that. Like I've never been in an all Indian space ever. And um, yeah, in, in in terms of your question earlier about like how I saw myself and my identity, like I it's not till becoming an adult that I was able to look back and see the ways in which I constantly felt like I like there was something wrong with me. I just always attributed to like, maybe it was personality mm. or like I was just unlikable. Like maybe I wasn't funny enough <laughs> or something. Uh, and then didn't, didn't have the categories for understanding race relations so much older, but yeah. So like all that to say, especially growing up, growing up in an all white town, attending an all white school, only white neighbors and classmates. Like this was a reality I couldn't escape. Like, and, and, this is true for so many bicultural people. Like there is no alternative. And so growing up, I spent most of my days just trying to fit in. Like, I, like, like anybody else, I wanted to be loved and have friends, um, which perhaps was the most a brown skinned Christian girl like me could hope for growing up in a Scandinavian community in Minnesota. Um, mm. And I spent much of my childhood thinking something was wrong with me and actively trying to make my Indianness invisible. And I desperately tried to imitate my white classmates so that you know, maybe I could be more likable or, or they'd, they'd, they'd see me as, as prettier or at the very least, maybe someone would start sitting by me at the lunch table. Um, you know, those, those are the experiences that I carry from growing up that I, I was the kid that brought traditional Indian food to lunch and nobody wanted to sit by me. And as horrible as it was that boys in our class, uh, like in my class would make those lists like those top 10 lists of like women and, and who's the prettiest kind of like that mm. that whole system is wrong completely right. wrong right but I never made those lists <laughs> like um so that it was like a double layer of misogyny and and sexism and, and and pain right that like in terms of all these ranking of beautiful classmates like I was never on the list and it was something that the boys in my class would tell me like Nobody wants to date you. You are not pretty. Like these were things that people told me in my school growing up. And so I told myself, I just need to make the best of it. If I could figure out how to act like the cool kids or dress like the pretty girls or do my hair a certain way or talk the way they did, then maybe like kids wouldn't make fun of me in class anymore. They'd stop excluding me from parties or say my culture was weird and that um, somehow that would be worth no longer wearing Indian clothes outside the home or bringing homemade lunches to school, or slowly distancing myself from certain familial narratives and values. And when I look back at my childhood, it feels like so many series of losses and shame, painful encounters um, of trying to hide who I truly was. But then here comes Psalm 119, verses 73 through 74, that says, your hands made me, 
and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. And these words I have found so much comfort in because it is a clear testament that God made me, that he formed me, and he intended for people to see me just the way I am and rejoice. And these two sentences from Psalm 119 speak powerfully into and over the lives of, of not just myself, but Indian Americans and, and people of color in general, our joys and struggles of hyphenated identities and, and caught between two worlds. And so, yeah, just the beauty of being me and, 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 and not needing to hide who I am. Right. Oh, that's so beautiful. And it's crazy to think how when you were talking about like these young boys, it's just so crazy to think how that is all learned behavior, you know, and like, we kind of like we act like I, I had posted a little something on it. Um, I think it was like two days ago talking about how a lot of our struggle for justice or our fight for justice is really just an un unnormalizing of what's just normal, you know, and like yeah. learns behavior like that. And, and we think like, Oh, you know, it's just whatever. They're just young boys, but no, they learn that somewhere, you know, whether it's from their family or whether it's from just their culture, what they watch on TV. And yeah, it's just, it's just to me, just so interesting to think that, you know, all we were trying to do is unnormalize this um, <laughs> dehumanizing normal behavior, which is yes. just so interesting and how that is such a divisive or, you know, such a radical idea. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Which, doesn't, you know, when you think of it that way, you're like, well, it's not really that, you know, out of the box. Mm -hmm. um, but and yeah, of course, for, for white boys, or white white boys and girls who have never been on the receiving end of this there's a complete lack of understanding and empathy right because there's nothing that they're proximate to that would give them clarity to to, to why that is wrong um so that's part of the issue as well yeah no that's so good i think that proximity is um that's a it's an important thing to talk about i know obviously brian Stevenson talks about that a lot mm -hmm. that has really um shaped me and moved me and how i understand that so um okay so you i know that we've we've already been talking about this but i would love to hear your thoughts and reflections on just the idea of a liminal space of an in-between space and i know you've touched on it um but if you want to yeah just just your reflection on that because i know that that's something huge in a lot of us you know people of color and um you know bicultured people um and everyone has their sort of reflection on it i know that that's something actually in my book right now that i'm writing a lot about and um, there's a, a a writer that I one of my favorites. Her name is Gloria Ansaldúa, and she talks about this in between space as a nepantla, and it's that's an indigenous mm. word for like just this in between. And and you had used the word blessing, and so I actually use that sort of that same idea of like oh, nice. this liminal, yeah, like this in between liminal space is not. Um, a lot of times we look at it we look at it as if it's sort of like this, well, we're not here nor there, but what if it's, uh, we're both from here and from there, or what if it's, yes. you know, we turn that on its head and like, well, that's a space of, that's a sacred space, right? A holy space, not um, a space that's lacking, but a space that has, I don't know, extra or whatever, <laughs> you know? So what is, what are sort of your reflections on your liminal space and how you see that as a blessing? Yeah, definitely. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, yeah, in terms of liminal space, so a lot began to change in my life after 
college and in the time it took me to leave Minnesota and pursue a doctoral degree in downtown Chicago, this was about the time the Christians of color started becoming more visible and raising their voices and stepping into leadership roles, both within the church and outside of that. And that, along with the immediacy of social media, helped me begin to connect with people both online and in person, just like myself, mm-hmm. um, which was a game changer, right? To, to grow up in an all-white community and see nobody like myself, to then be connected virtually, at, at the very least, um, with so many fellow Christians of color. I discovered a whole world of people with bicultural identities who had all grown up like me, <laughs> living in the in-between and constantly renegotiating their identities and just trying to make it one day at a time. And all of a sudden, I was no longer alone. And no matter if we were black, brown, or white, we began journeying together and learning to see the beauty in our cultures and the ways we could embrace the plurality of our expressions. We could, we could be both. We could be like no one and everyone and celebrate this uniqueness. And something that I have started saying just about myself is that I am like all Indians, I am like some Indians, and I am like no other Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I think there is so much beauty in that because um, for so many of us that are, are bicultural or that grew up in these liminal spaces, we were forced to be chameleons, if you will, like just constantly changing who we were based on who we were interacting with. Um, and I think particularly within Asian American culture, like this is, this has been um, taught or pressed into us that this is a point of shame Mm. that uh, we don't have our own category to fit into. Um, And that's really how I felt and experienced this liminality growing, growing up, that this was a point of shame. Uh, But, you know, now I see this fluidity, this, being able to transform myself as also one of my greatest strengths. Like I know how to make someone feel seen and understood and my radar for people on the margins is high uh, because I've been there, right? <laughs> like I've been on the margins and I'm passionate about making sure people don't get left behind. Um, people like you and I, people who have, who straddle multiple worlds and cultures, we, we get people's pain of right. not feeling welcome in monocultural spaces because we've been there already. And we can walk that path. We walk that path before and can now extend a hand of friendship to others to say, like, I got you. Let's let's do this together. Uh, and so I think, honestly, as we look at all the crazy things happening in 2020, which is, it's nothing new, right? Like racism is nothing new. <laughs> it's just we now have viral videos and poop. Um, and, and so it's, it's really pulling back the curtains to all of this ugly racism that's always existed in our history. And as we're trying to figure out how do we move forward, I honestly believe it is, uh, Christians, bicultural, with bicultural identities who are going to lead the way for bridge building because we know how to speak to both sides. We understand how to cross the fence. Uh, and and adapt the way we speak, the way we uh, behave, the way we interact, you know, even like sort of the personality we express with with different people, like we know how to do that. And so I think um, we, as as a church, as the body of Christ, we need to be putting a lot, a lot more of our resources, our discipleship efforts, our training, seminaries as well, into equipping the next generation of bicultural uh, Christians to to do the work of, of bridge building. 
Amen. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love how you, for some reason, the word flexibility just stood out to me when you said that. Um, mm. Yeah, I just, I, that's, I think, just think that's a good word. You're, uh, or I guess we're able to live with a flexible um, identity or just a flexible way of being. And I think that that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was going to go into asking you about your PhD work, but I think that this is a good segue to actually talk about your book. Um, so you have oh. a book coming up, which is super <laughs> exciting. Um, yeah. The title is Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's with Zondervan, it's uh, set to release in March 2021, which feels like forever. <laughs> like 2020 has been the longest year oh, of all of our lives. <laughs> it just feels like forever away. But um, I'm very excited for for March 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, obviously, I'm I'm focusing on cross cultural relationships and um, wanting to give practical steps to 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 how to make small changes in our lives and the passage that is that runs central to my book is first corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23 and in this passage paul says though i am free and belong to no one i have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible mm -hmm. to the jews i became like a jew to win the jews to those under the law i became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Um, and he goes on to say, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some, and I do this for the sake of the gospel, that mm -hmm. I may share in its blessings. And so the, 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 the question really that I'm asking uh, that's central to this book is, what does it mean to become all things to all peoples? What does it mean, like if, if Paul was writing this to us today, uh, you know, U.S. American Christians, I would imagine him saying something like, to the Latino, I became a Latino, to the African American, I became an African American, to, you know, to the homeless, to the poor, you know, to fill in the blank, I became like that person mm -hmm. um, for the sake of the gospel. And so how do we learn how to, on the one hand, lean into and develop and appreciate and celebrate our god-given cultural identities how do we do that while also learning from scripture how to adapt and accommodate ourselves to other people's cultures as well so that's the premise of the book so good so good i love it okay so you sent me a quote from the book that i would love to ask you to elaborate on while we're on this topic um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. And then, yeah, if you want to just unpack it. So you say healthy relationships across cultures. And I'm assuming that I'm, I'm going to be repeating a little bit of what um, you just said. Um, mm. But healthy relationships across cultures can be done. It is possible for majority and minority, black, brown, and white to come together and thrive. I've seen it happen in my own life. But the road forward begins by being willing to embrace change. We must be willing to think differently about who we are and the way we're supposed to live our lives. There's a lot that we're going to have to unlearn. We're also going to have to understand what it means to be culturally adaptable and read scripture through this lens. So if you want to unpack that amazing quote for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So this, this phrase, I have become all things to all people. You know, we've been talking about 
liminality. Um, I also mentioned like this this idea of, of Indian Americans and Asian Americans in general and people with bicultural identities being chameleons of sorts. Mm -hmm. And every time I read this phrase, I become all things to all people. I think of my own life because that's the very thing I've I felt forced to do growing up. Right. That's the one thing that Paul says is. But but what's what's powerful about it, the thing I felt forced to do is the one thing Paul says is a requirement for the Christian life. Right. And so it's not just Indian Americans who have to learn how to be chameleons. It's all Christians everywhere. Um, each of us need to hear Paul's words today and learn how to be chameleons um, in, in, in our own way. Every person of every cultural background needs to be on a journey of becoming. Mm -hmm. um, and we each need to learn how to adapt and transform ourselves to the world around us. And and honestly, like this is going to be messy, right? Because even though the the topics of race and culture have risen to most of our consciousness, like the forefront of our consciousness this year, mm -hmm. uh, we're all at different starting points, right? There's a lot of people who are just now realizing that whiteness is real <laughs> and they're wrestling with the confusion and reality of racial differences. Uh, between themselves and people of color, but there's also people of color who have been carrying hurt and shame and even anger for the ways they've had to accommodate to the dominant culture mm -hmm. and hide parts of their cultural identities. And to be asked again to step into a place of vulnerability and openness is is a scary idea, to say the least. And so, um, and then not only that, but others have tried to extend the hand of friendship across cultures and have experienced criticism or shame as a result, or they've been called racist right like um but now that uh, what i'm trying to do in this book is to bring majority and minority together and say hey you know now that we're all in this together where do we go from here and um yeah so my my goal is is to equip to encourage and to empower mm -hmm. um to to reread the stories of men and women in scripture through this lens, um, whether it's Moses or Ruth or Esther, even mm -hmm. um, all of these bicultural people okay. who uh, straddle two different worlds and and are uh, like like Esther, for example, this Jewish woman in Babylon who knows how to address a king while also utilizing the art of storytelling to save her people. I mean, like clear mm -hmm. Jewish expression in a, within a foreign national context. I mean, it's powerful. Um, you know, and, and, and each of these men and women learn to change and adapt their words and personalities and lifestyles to connect with the people around them. And, you know, we're not always going to get it right. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're going to mess up. We're, 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 we're going to fail. Um, and that's okay too. Um, because, because we're learning and we're trying and we need to keep getting, keep getting back up. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's the encouragement of the book, that learning to adapt will be hard, but if we can commit to this process of change and commit to persevering, the, 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 the work is worth it. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I always think about that in the sense of, um, it, especially in recent conversations, how it seems like a lot of people have been committing to the work of learning and anti-racism mm -hmm. and um, but it is, it's a long journey. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's going to be a lot of learning and a lot of unlearning and a lot of, it's just going to be a long journey. And you just, like you said, have to commit to the work of persevering and sticking to it and not giving up and not, you know, not getting bored with it or not any of those things. And also, you know, not letting shame, um, as you mentioned, stop you from 
continuing in the work, not letting shame or not letting um, lack of, uh, or ignorance or lack of knowing, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just an ongoing effort. And so I think that's really important that you're talking about that. And I'm super excited to read your book and I'm sure those listening are as well. And you said March of next year. Yeah. Awesome. March, 2021. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually right around the corner. <laughs> if you think I know it feels forever away, but <laughs> you're right. We're getting closer. <laughs> oh, 30 August, uh, which is, yeah, so close anyway. Um, okay. So you have a PhD in German, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in German literature, right? 18th yeah. century German literature, which is super mm-hmm. interesting. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, once upon a time, I got a PhD in 18th century German literature from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, and my focus was uh, folklore. And so I taught folklore at UIC. I also taught at Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago. And um, in 2014, when my husband and I moved down to Austin, Texas, to church plant, I was a German professor at a local university here in Austin. And I taught um, a few different courses. I taught German folklore. I taught um, comparative folklore, like German, French, and Italian. Uh, but I also taught feminist folklore and feminist uh, revisions of, of traditional folklore too, so which was a, which was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I I haven't been in the academy since 2018, and it was purely uh, it was purely economics. I had no intention of leaving the academy, but uh, in the in the midst of humanities programs across the country, really struggling financially. Um, ours was one of many that, that went, underwent uh, financial cuts. And so um, that winter break, 2017 winter break, our president at the time decided to cut the yeah. funding for the humanities program by 50%. Yeah. And so yeah. literally half of the professors in the humanities programs were informed right before Christmas that their job no longer existed. And I was one of those professors. And so I went into 2018, like, what do I, what do I do? Um, but you know, one of the things that is so powerful about folklore that I, that I love teaching is, uh, the, the narrative justice aspect of it. I mean, these are, these are the, I mean, folk tales are the tales of the folk, right? These are the, the tales of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And, and when horrible things happen to them, the, sometimes the only thing in their power is their own voice, right? And, and telling their story as a, as a means to mobilize their community to justice. And so um, in 2018, I pivoted to full-time vocational ministry alongside my husband uh, with our church plant and began implementing that idea in our local community, which is a low-income and disadvantaged community here on the east side. It's, it's um, you know, because of the 1920s master plan in Austin, like this is where this, this is where uh, people of color were segregated. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it's largely minority, um, a large percent is immigrant um, and undocumented. I mean, we have ice raids happen in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, friends and family members who have been uh, falsely incarcerated and, and all the rest. And so helping to use, this, you know, the small platform of our church, but being able to elevate immigrant stories and have them share their story through their own voice 
mm. um, and, and, and those who have been falsely incarcerated and those who are single moms and just, you know, you name it, has really been a form of narrative justice for these people in our community. So folklore still lives on <laughs> in, a different, uh, in a different form now. Wow, that's fascinating. I love that. How you, um, yeah, took your expertise and put it, you know, into your communities and into your ministries. Um, I think that's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about um, folklore and scripture and as far as, or as well as the trick stars? Um, <laughs> so it's, which is the female, right? Tricksters. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about that and even maybe how that intersects with your community or your ministry. Totally. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting when I tell people that I, uh, you know, I grew up reading folklore or I taught folklore. And uh, a lot of times Christians wholesale reject these types of stories because they're full of duplicity and cunning and immorality even. Right. right. Like I've had more than one person tell me like these these tales are not a model for the the, the, the Christian life, like they endorse murder and, 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 and other sorts of things. Um, but what many people don't realize is we see these exact types of tales in scripture. Right. And there's a whole subset of stories with a biblical narrative that would be considered tales of the folk. Mm -hmm. And there's tricksters in them. And it's, um, you know, one of my encouragement is for us as Christians to revisit these tales and take another look at what they're trying to tell us about our world today and the powerless among us and then what righteousness for them actually looks like and this is um this is where tamar <laughs> comes in because uh in in genesis 38 tamar experiences a great injustice um she's supposed to marry judah's third son but she's denied this right and is left vulnerable in society and you know women didn't have any legal status like she couldn't take right to court or whatever the ancient equivalent would have been um she has she has no power and so what does she do she decides to defy this confinement and achieve her rights and she takes matters into her own hands and changes the course of history but it's her unorthodox method that first centers the story as distinctly folklore um but also um you know confirms her uh, role as a trick star because she transforms herself into a sexually transgressive woman tricks Judah into thinking she's a prostitute and gets pregnant by him mm -hmm. uh, but then of course make sure she has proof that it's Judah <laughs> by keeping his seal and cord and staff um, and these actions secure a familial line for Tamar's in yeah. fact because of this duplicity that she becomes part of Jesus's family tree and after all of this it's Judah himself who declares she is more righteous than I. Yeah. And this is what's so incredible is that Tamar's duplicity is praised as righteousness. Um, and because her deception forces Judah to do the right thing. If she hadn't, the very line of the Messiah could have been threatened uh, as one of Tamar's sons is in Jesus's line. Um, so trickery and specifically sexual trickery mm -hmm. is Tamar's only option a tool that not only secures her physical and social security in her cultural location, but also promises spiritual satisfaction as well, uh, which, which is why I argue that Tamar embodies this biblical trick star, a vulnerable and power, powerless woman with nothing but her wits to affect social and spiritual change, and nobody condemns her for her actions. And so all that to say, um, for the powerless, 
in the world. You know, um, sometimes I think it's hard for us to completely understand in uh, you know, 21st century America, but around the world and in countries where there are no such things as equality and rights for all and right. where things like educational access and benefactors and social mobility are impossible, uh, and when the powerful are cruel, what what do the powerless have at their disposal to protect themselves? What do women like Tamar have at their disposal? Um, oftentimes nothing but the power of their own voice and their choice of agency. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's so interesting because particularly within evangelical circles, we're always so afraid of being tricked, right? We're, we're afraid of being tricked or duped. You know, we don't want to give money to the homeless because they could be lying to us. Right. Um, we don't trust people on the streets or those who are destitute or hungry or bankrupt or quote-unquote illegal because they might be taking advantage of us. Um, but really, I think so many of us are the Judas in this story uh, mm -hmm. that, that we are uh, benefiting from these broken systems and institutions in which the law favors people like us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we feel like maybe we have been tricked or taken advantage of or insulted in some way, uh, I think this is like God holding up a mirror to our lives and saying we need to listen up and see our own sin and confess it and learn how to better care for the vulnerable in our midst. And so um, I don't know, I'm still kind of like wrestling with this, this application, mm -hmm. but it is quite possible that the moral of, of tales like Genesis 38 is that the end justifies the means as long as the end is a righteous end, <laughs> right? And so um, for us to be very, very cautious in our condemnation of the powerless and the ways in which they, you know, trust God and use their wits um, to engender their own justice. So, right. Oh, that is so good. So good. And yeah, I was actually um, writing about Tamar today and it is just, it's so rich, particularly how she's considered, you know, how you said she's called righteous for her mm. trickery. Um, yeah. I mean, you see the same thing with Ruth, you know, she's told to go and, and basically seduce Boaz. And <laughs> You know, all of these women and, and God blesses all of it, you know, and even the men too. I mean, you have Jacob, you know, he tricks um, his father to think he's Esau and all of these situations. Um, you know, I've been having so many conversations with, with old friends about this and, and yeah, this idea of, well, how do we reconcile this? Well, maybe we don't have to, maybe we can just let that be what it is, you know, and just, so good. yeah. And like you said, I mean, God is, he is with, and he is on the side of, as we talk so much about, of the poor and the oppressed. And so maybe that's just where God resides and exists. And it doesn't make sense to us, but that's okay. And I think that, and I think, I mean, it does make sense. Cause like you said, I mean, for in many ways, the, the narrative arc of this is that, um, uh, an entire group of people are, are liberated, right? I mean, this doesn't just affect the, the, the people in the story, but it affects the future generations. And so I think it does make sense, but I think in the black and whiteness or in the binary that we've been trained to think, it doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's really, a pulling, yeah, it's pulling ourselves out of that, that binary thinking, that black and white thinking and allowing ourselves and God to exist in that gray, confusing, you know, shocking um, space. So mm -hmm. Amen. that's so good thank you for sharing that story that's so good <laughs> i feel like you and i could probably talk all day about uh, <laughs> women and trick stars in the bible <laughs> yes totally oh, so good 
Um, and actually, um, Miguel de la Torre, he's a, a Cuban theologian, ethicist, and he talks about, um, he, he calls it in Spanish, uh, ethics para joder. And it's essentially like an ethics of just screwing with the system and screwing, you know, like just messing with the system. And it's sort of the same idea, you know. Um, and he speaks of it uh, from the perspective of the, the hopeless. And so he's, mm -hmm. he's developed an entire theology of hopelessness. And that's part of it. Like hopelessness wow. is, you know, and he's like, we want to push past hopelessness and push to hope but hopelessness is where there is perseverance hopelessness in the desperation that is where you find people you know persevering and, and doing and acting and moving and god in that so, so yeah good. there's just so much there <laughs> that is so good i'm gonna have to look them up that sounds fascinating yeah it's really good okay so um last question and I was supposed to ask you this earlier, so I might feel a little out of place and you might've already touched on it. Um, <laughs> so I'll ask you and then, you know, we can just kind of uh, finish up here, but um, you did talk about, and the reason why I'm curious about this is because it's a term that not many people are familiar with. I believe it's a Hindu term, correct? The mm -hmm. muluk? Mm -hmm. Okay, muluk. I'm saying that, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Um, so I love, you know, I love the idea. I'm very drawn to um, words that aren't in English because, you know, language is so limiting in many ways. And so I love, you know, like using words that um, we may not be familiar with. And so um, you, you in, in something that you wrote, you mentioned this idea of muluk and you say that we cannot flourish and thrive and feel at home unless we are able to fully lean into our God-given cultural identities. And I'm just curious, as we finish up here, how has that specific idea of Muluk um, shaped you or formed you? And what has been your experience or what has that experience been like for you leaning into your God-given cultural identity? Um, and as someone with all that that comes, comes along with it, for example, I mean, your education, right? Being in the academy, your, your PhD in German literature and, you know, all of that that comes along with it. From my understanding, you're also in a bicultural marriage, correct? Mm -hmm. um, yes, my husband is second generation Mexican-American. Yeah, so all of these things um, and tied together into the idea of Muluk. Um, what has all of that been for you, that experience? Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, so uh, Muluk, this is a, a word in Hindi, which more or less translates to home sweet home. Um, and it's a word that, you know, means far more than just a place of belonging. Um, when someone says, I found Muluk, they say it with both joy and pride because it's um, not just a place of rest, but a place where they can be their full cultural selves and feel understood and loved. And, you know, as we've been talking, um, and I've been sharing some of my story and growing up in Minnesota. Like this was obviously something I didn't feel growing up. Um, just feeling out of place, feeling lost, feeling like the misfit. And um, obviously a lot changed as I shared after college. And even now, um, which is college is like a long time ago now, but um, my, my Asian American community, my Indian American community, it's all growing and largely online and i'm grateful for that and in the post that i wrote for encourage uh where i'm a a regular contributor like i was focusing primarily on that sort of uh, experience of home sweet home within a, a like-minded asian american community where people just get me like there's so many things that i don't have to explain or um 
I, I'm sure you've experienced this too, Kat, where like sharing an experience of racism or racial prejudice, like trying to tell that to people that are not your own cultural uh, background. Like I've shared those stories and I'm like in tears and it feels very vulnerable. And it's, 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 um, it's really difficult to share those stories, but then like I could share that exact same story, like in a group of like fellow Asians and we're like laughing and it's like <laughs> me too. And it's just this ridiculous, um, I mean, sometimes there's tears as well, but there's like right. that, 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 uh, fear of what are they going to think of me is totally gone because you know, these people get it. And so that's mm. a little bit of, of Mulak too, but I want to say, I want to, give a caveat to all of that as well, because I want to encourage um, my fellow Christians of color for, for people who might be listening to this, that we can find Mulak in Christ, regardless of um, our, our, our physical location. And this is important because I've spent most of my life alone, like with no other people of color in my community. And I don't want anyone to think that that feeling of home is simply contingent on who is in your inner circle. Mm. Um, there's a lot of us that are still deeply alone in all white spaces, feeling misunderstood. Right. Um, and even there, we can cling to the truth that we were made with a beautiful cultural day that reflects God's image in the world. And my encouragement is, is don't let anyone tell you otherwise, <laughs> you know, don't believe the lie that you're, skin color and your beauty and your body, your customs, your views of the world, your expressions, all of that, everything that makes you you, um, is somehow that's unwelcome or less than or without value. Uh, because whether it's in this life or the next, you can trust that God is working to restore all things, including the joy and the beauty and pride of who we are as cultural beings. Like that idea that home is coming for all of us, like that's Mulak, and um, that's a truth in scripture that we can cling to uh, in, in, the, in the here and now. So I, 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 I hope that makes sense um, yeah. in terms of uh, whether we've sort of found our people or, or not, you know, that we can still find that sense of, of I am at home uh, with Christ. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I do love the idea of of home both spiritually and yeah um finding that place or that rhythm or that space that uh is healing and you know for you and and i think that um spirituality and, and our faith in god and that is certainly um a locus for that and so so yeah that's so good thank you um so where can our listeners find your work or just follow you or or yeah yeah I mean, I feel like I'm in all the traditional places. Um, although now that I've recently discovered TikTok, I feel like I'm not on Facebook anymore. But so I, um, like Facebook, I'm michelle.ami.reyes, uh, Instagram, Michelle Reyes, and then Twitter, Dr. Michelle Reyes. And then you can also find me at the Asian American Christian Collaborative.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was so good. Um, I loved hearing about all of your incredibly just rich and diverse experiences and how you're, um, yeah, meeting, meeting the divine and all of that, you know, just kind of wrestling with that. I think that that's a, a wrestle that we're going to have for the rest of our lives mm. um, in every season, just kind of meeting God um, in all these different nuanced spaces. And so thank you for sharing your story and your journey. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been, yeah, this has been great to chat with you, Kat. 
Yeah, and I'm super excited for your book. So um, let us know when we can pre-order. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> Thank you.